Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung. On today's episode, Dr. Lavanya Devdas interviews clinical psychology doctoral student Ankita Sahu regarding integrating diversity in training, supervision, and practice. This promises to be a special episode, not just because of the information it contains, but also because this is the first Psychology Radiocast episode to offer continuing education credit. Dr. Devdas, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. David. It's really good to be here, and this is such an important podcast to be part of, so thank you. Now, for our listeners who don't yet know you, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, um, I am a licensed psychologist, and I do private practice in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and I'm also licensed in New York, so I see clients through teletherapy in Pennsylvania and New York. And I recently moved uh, back to North Wales, Pennsylvania to join my partner, um, which is very exciting for me. And I think I have been part of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association since I was a doctoral student. And I'm so glad and relieved that I continue to be part of PPA. Uh, And currently I'm also the uh, chair for the Committee on Multiculturalism and the integrative collaborative culture and the support and the learning that happens across you know across colleagues and the support that i've gotten is amazing uh, i also currently uh, teach as an adjunct professor at delval university for group counseling and uh, that's me so far well dr devis welcome back to uh, the fine state of pennsylvania i i remember a uh, my first impression of you was uh, I was uh, very full of respect because um, you and I attended an emerging leaders uh, training and there happened to be a blizzard that day and you still made it many hours from New York through the blizzard. Oh, you remember that? Yes, I did. I did. I um, I did. I wanted to make it uh, to the emerging leaders training program because the atmosphere, the collegiality that comes with it, I think it's something that I've gotten a taste of. And so I felt like that was so important to me that I, I wanted to make it to that training that, on that uh, blizzard, during that blizzard that weekend. And I'm really glad I made it, actually. Thank you. I appreciate what you said. Well, we were too. And we're, we were glad that uh, you made it safely both ways. But, um, so how did you get to know Ms. Ahu? And how did this interview come about? Sure. So I'm also actively involved with the Division on South Asian Americans, which is uh, a division under the um, under the Asian American Psychological Association. And uh, I'm also part of their mentorship program. And as part of the mentorship program, um, I am uh, assigned certain um, mentees and I chose to opt for one mentee per year. And this time I was assigned with uh, Ms. Ankita Sahu, whose interests on diversity, on acculturation, on intersecting identities uh, was really paramount. And it was a really a perfect match with my interests as well. So through that shared interest, we got paired with each other. And we were talking about how can we best uh, promote the role of diversity, not from a narrow lens, but what diversity can actually encompass from 
different identities, from different lived experiences. And I know that uh, I'm also part, part of this podcast group through PPA. And I thought, why not do uh, a podcast that highlights uh, a snippet of uh, what diversity can look like and feel like as a process for a graduate student who's in training. And so I thought this was a fantastic opportunity to come together and talk more about that those aspects with Ms. Ankita Sahu. As I listened to the interview, I, f- I found that it had a nice conversational style, but also that there was an underlying structure and direction. Can you share some of the main ideas that you'd wanted to explore during the interview and what you hope the listener learns from this episode? Sure. I think um, the main core uh, of the structure or the direction I wanted this uh, interview to go towards is that multiculturalism is about such diverse aspects of our identities and lived experiences as psychologists and psychologists in training. And so the purpose was really to highlight that there are such layered nuances of our identities and lived experiences. And these come out through the way we speak, the language, the hierarchy within different um, professional relationships, be it therapy, supervision, and training, that I think I wanted to highlight all of those aspects uh, through this interview. And I'm hoping that the listener is able to tease apart those nuances, be it language, culture, and how that plays out in talking about our strengths and areas of growth, especially from a graduate student perspective in the area of training and supervision and practice. Because I know... APA and PPA is also moving more towards um, a competency-based approach that garners towards constant exploration or frequent exploration of our own cultures, our biases, our blind spots, and also how our lived experiences inform how we present ourselves to our clients and as professionals. And so that inner reflection and growth has layers of diversity in it. And so my hope is for the listen is for listeners to be able to pick up on those nuances. Your primary role was as interviewer, but on a personal level, what were some of the personal takeaways that you had from this interview? I think for me, uh, there were a few similarities. Uh, I think she identifies as a female, as a woman of color, and also a person from um, South Asia. And so the biggest takeaways was how similar our uh, communication styles were in terms of being uh, indirect and direct sometimes in terms of couching things in context uh, and sometimes just saying things directly. So I think for me, it stood out that I didn't have to ask very many follow-up questions. I could just instantly relate to that language, to that culture, that meaning. Um, And I could certainly relate to the part where she talked about this fatigue of balancing between wanting to create awareness of cultural diversity and humility, and at the same time, not not needing to be the only one in the room having to do it. And this acknowledgement that, you know, when you walk into an environment and you look around, there is diversity immediately present. And it comes almost naturally to understand when you look around, okay, you're maybe one among the few people of color or you're one among the few people whose identity, one of their identities becomes salient in the room 
and others may not share that that part of the identity. So I think that part also uh, you know, stood out for me. And the other piece that was um, important and felt different was, I think um, the level of acculturation struck me through this course of the interview in that sometimes the way I was phrasing questions and the way I was summarizing what she felt, I felt that my tone of language and the, my style of presenting or summarizing um, had a bit of uh, the US-based Western culture to it in the sense that I was aware of the social mores when I was talking about or summarizing what she had to say. Whereas when I was listening to her talk, I felt like she was at a different level uh, level of acculturation in that the way she presented the choice of words that she used and the tone of voice that she used, I felt reflected a different level of acculturation. And I got to learn tons uh, from her. So those were things that stood out for me. What wonderful observations. Uh, Dr. Deb just Thank you for interviewing Ms. Sahu for us. Now, for our listeners, our interviews are often done in the field, so you might hear some background noise during parts of the interview, so we ask that you bear with us during those segments. If you'd like continuing education credit for this episode, please check the show notes or email ppa at papsy.org. And now for the interview. Hi, Ankita. I'm... Welcome, firstly, and thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know this is for the Pennsylvania Psychological Association's podcast. And uh, today we are going to be talking a little bit about diversity and the importance of the process of integrating diversity into training, uh, what it means for you as a graduate student uh, in training, in supervision, and in practice. Um, so. If you have any, if you don't have any other questions, I can get started right away. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Okay, great. So firstly, Ankita, tell me what prompted you to train in psychology? Mm -hmm. So that's actually a very good question. Kind of reminds me of like graduate school application, personal statement. Um, but I was actually really interested in understanding like group culture and group response surrounding like tragedy and how it's communicated to children. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in India, we had a lot of like um, natural disasters, but also like, you know, terror attacks and things like that. And it's to do with like tragic death, but that was never communicated to children as a community. Um, mm -hmm. So I was very curious, like, you know, how does a culture respond to something like that? The adults were talking, um, but nothing was happening when it came to kids. And when I looked into like, what is uh, the study of like group culture and things like that, psychology and sociology popped up. Um, so that's what I did in my undergraduate as a psychology major with a sociology mm -hmm. minor, because I was really interested in how the group like kind of influences individual thoughts and behaviors and emotional responses and things like that. Wonderful. So it sounds like you wanted to in integrate the, the group, the collectivist context and how the individual influences that, that context and vice versa. So almost looking at individuals within their context. Right. And like at that time, you know, I didn't have those terms. And like now I know what it is. But at that time, I was just like interested in like how me as an individual is influenced by the culture around me and the community around me. Wonderful. 
That's fantastic. That's much needed right now. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I know um, the American Psychological Association or APA, um, it focuses a lot on um, examining and exploring one's own cultural values or belief systems and how that impacts our own development as psychologists, as graduate students, as uh, researchers in the field of psychology. And it really encourages us to examine how it can positively impact and sometimes uh, hinder, uh, you know, deliverance of competent services for the clientele that we serve. Right. And so I'm curious, given the importance of such an exploration of our own belief systems, mm -hmm. uh, what aspects of training do you find beneficial mm -hmm. uh, for your own personal and professional growth as a graduate student? Mm -hmm. I think like, one of the biggest factors that played in my training is that being an international graduate student and being a South Asian woman, I knew that the knowledge that I was consuming was already in like a different culture. So that kind of like awareness is through like a lived experience. So I would say like the part of the training that I really appreciate the most is feedback and open dialogues. So be it in an academic setting when we're sitting in courses um, and having a discussion, or it could be a clinical setting where you're sitting with your supervisor and discussing the client. Um, but the bottom line of it is the feedback that you receive and your ability to consume it and take it, but also having that kind of environment where an open dialogue happens, where I can learn from your perspective but you understand my perspective as well. So I think the mm -hmm. biggest thing about the training is that my identity as a South Asian woman, international graduate student, A, can never leave the room, but never left the room, that it was acknowledged. And there were times that I had to bring it in, but there were times mm -hmm. that my supervisors and professors actively sorted to talk about those issues. And I think that difficult conversation is the biggest like awareness piece because with that mm -hmm. awareness, then you can know what you want to do with it, right? Like how, as you said, like, does it impact my clinical work or my research in a positive or negative manner? Or even if it's not a positive or negative manner, recognizing that it does impact, you know, the way I interact with what I'm consuming, the kind of work that I'm doing, the client I'm working with. So I think mm -hmm. that is something to be cognizant of. And I would like always encourage like graduate training programs and supervisors to know that, yes, you know, having great courses helps, having great research helps, having a diverse clientele helps. But at the mm -hmm. bottom line, if we have that open feedback and that dialogue, that's mm -hmm. what stands out as a graduate student. I remember those difficult conversations, those uncomfortable maybe conversations, but very much eye-opening at that point. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So it sounds like, you know, you mentioned a graduate student and you also mentioned a South Asian woman of color. And those are uh, such intersecting identities for you from the way I understand it. And what I'm hearing you say is, in the, especially in the training aspect, it's so critical to have that respectful environment and space to bring those cultural selves to the table because it never left you in the first place. And right. to be able to have a conversation on, 
intersectionality, differences, similarities, because those stand out to you as naming the elephant in the room if, if, if it exists. Right, exactly. Like there is, a, there's an author who talks about that culture is always like the silent partner in therapy. And I think that is so true. Like, you know, you have the cultural context of the therapeutic um, room, but you have the cultural context of the client and the therapist, the supervisor, the institution that it's happening at, the mental health clinic. And I think if it continues to be kind of like a silent partner, there is maybe more room for like miscommunication and um, missing certain points and really truly not seeing the client for their entirety. So I think like instead of making it silent, like why don't we give it a voice? And I think like by giving it a voice, it is so empowering because it's opening up the conversation. Granted, it also opens up, you know, you up for vulnerability. Mm -hmm. But opening up that conversation leads to like genuine human connection, either at like an academic supervisory or like a client therapist relationship. So I think that's uh, important as well that I learned. Absolutely. And from what I'm hearing, it sounds like authenticity to your cultural self or multiple identities is very central to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Definitely. And, and that's what I mean. Like, you know, like, for example, like I always talk about this because it shows kind of like the, uh, the study of psychology being rooted in a Western cultural context, because, um, you know, earlier in the training, we get a lot of feedback on our micro skills and clinical skills. And one of the feedback that I used to get is my interventions are lengthy in the way that I give explanations and then I give the feedback, uh, which kind of water downs the effect of it. But it wasn't until like the second year of my training that one of my supervisors said that how that kind of like language is culturally contextualized, like the way we speak is giving a context, giving a story, and then going to the main point. And, you know, before that, Mm -hmm. all of my supervisors had given the similar feedback back what was different about this supervisor is she understood the place I was coming from and like that was so like relieving almost which is you know the word I want to use because it doesn't mean that I didn't need to change my clinical style or you know adjust my clinical style I still needed to do that like the um, end game is the same but the process was different. And when that process includes your identities, when that process includes that cultural context, it is much more rewarding because you feel understood as a person and your story is being understood and taken account of. And it sounds like because of that, you're able to bring your complete self to the classroom, to the research, and to the clinical work that you do because of that validation, cultural integration piece. Exactly, exactly. Wow. Um, So I'm going to ask you one more question about the training piece. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know that, you know, you touched on this a little bit, and I'm hoping that you would elaborate a little bit more on it is that, you know, APA also encourages that training to work with a diverse clientele is such a core aspect of training, and APA encourages that it be integrated into a curriculum in the form of didactics or and or practical training. Right. So keeping that in mind, I'm curious, what aspects of didactic and practical training helped you integrate your uh, diversity piece as a researcher and a clinician? 
Mm -hmm. So I think one of the interesting pieces when I think about diversity is we often talk about it in terms of race, right? Like um, working with different subcultural groups. And I think what um, I learned in my training experience is that culture can also be like rural culture versus like a city culture. So the training program I'm at is very like rural and with it, it comes mm -hmm. with a lot of like cultural nuances. So the mm -hmm. clients that I'm working with come from maybe really small towns with like legacies of families living in those spaces, you know, um, intersecting issues of like lower SES, you know, lack of resources. Mm -hmm. That was very eye-opening because that is also a part of the U.S. culture that often we don't see or we don't um, maybe acknowledge. And I'm generalizing it a little bit, but like I feel that that tends to happen. So in mm -hmm. my training, I think like working with diverse population was that, like working with the rural uh, mental health clinics or even working with students who are first-generation students or students of color and what it means to be at like a primarily white institution. And having mm -hmm. said that, you know, when we talk about diversity of experiences in clinical training, um, me walking into a room already makes it some ways a diverse encounter. And the reason I say that is because my like my skin color and my accent you know when i speak is not it's present in the room so you know even if i'm interacting with a white client there mm -hmm. that is like that is prevalent so like you know working with people like with counter transference issues transference issues but also like over identification issues when i'm working with like let's say a third generation south asian client and you know i had to address that that sometimes we might have similar experiences but also different because I come from India and you were raised here and like if mm -hmm. I that over identification piece can take away empowerment from the client for telling their own story um, in the same way like you know I feel like I had to have empathic confrontations or empathic conversations with my clients like especially like my white male clients have encountered in um, the university counseling center stating that they feel like saying their problems in front of me is um, not appropriate or is like minimizing the struggles that I probably go through as an international mm -hmm. student and as a woman of color. Um, so it comes from a place of assumption that my life is hard or like my life is clearly hard. Um, you know, a statement that I have received in the past by a client but it also like, you know, is a great point of educating the client, but also bringing it back to the sense of like, you know, an individual struggles does not minimize the other person's struggle. Um, I feel like I digressed a bit, like your training. No, that's, that's a really good example of a lot of assumptions people make based on the identity that you wear and visible identities. And uh, I think that's very powerful to have that open dialogue. And I'm curious if you would be able to give an example of what that might look like. Mm -hmm. So I think like, um, for example, with my white male client, you know, when, when he did say that, he's like, um, I do think that life is clearly hard for you. So like me talking about these issues, I feel like I'm minimizing like this, this is not even painful. So I think um, being a person centered and interpersonal, like theoretical orientation approach that I take, 
I was like, okay, let's pause a minute and let's unpack this. Like, um, let's talk about this openly. So like, you know, because of the theoretical orientation, it's very easy for me to kind of like bring our relationship into conversation of like what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think acknowledging that, acknowledging that in a non-judgmental manner, acknowledging that in a direct, but like a soft direct approach, which is also like naturally that comes to me from like my cultural upbringing. So just talking about it, like what is going on for you when you feel like you cannot share this with me because you feel that I have gone through certain struggles? How do you think that impacts your story in this room or your voice in this room? And then like after, you know, getting the focus to the client, then educating that, you know, it can still come from like a place of assumption. You know, it might be that I have not had those kind of struggles, though I appreciate the kind of place of care maybe it's coming from. But let's not assume, you know, and also if you assume that someone is in pain, it doesn't take away, you know, your pain or your story or your voice in this room. So kind of bringing it back to the client. Um, Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that, you know, I think being a person of color, being a student of color, this constant empathy is something that's part of our experience when we are educating people, right, when we are correcting people in a way that is empathic that is soft and sometimes it does come with some tiredness sometimes it comes Mm -hmm. with I don't want to keep educating you about my culture I don't want to keep educating you about my experiences so I think it is important that I had a space in group supervision and individual supervision where I could process my own feelings because that's not like a part of it you can do in the therapy room but a But a big chunk of it is not for the therapy room because that's my stuff that I need to process. So that's what I mean is like recognizing. And if your supervisor does not recognize, I think hoping that you feel empowered to bring it, to talk Mm. about it. Absolutely. So you touched on a lot of great points. You talked about having perhaps a a gentler, and you used the word softer approach which uh, resonates uh, with with the culture that you identify with and also being able to uh, bring, like you said, your own stuff as a graduate student and as a woman of color uh, that comes into play and becomes active in the room to be able to have that safe space to process that. It seems like both of those need to happen parallelly and they need to unfold simultaneously and to have that space and that giving yourself permission to be able to express that, it sounds like it's vitally important. Right. And I think, you know, as you were, as you were like talking about this, it reminded me of another point is owning our mistakes. So what I mean by that is these conversations are, can be filled with faltering. It can be filled with assumptions and maybe sometimes stereotyping or just your intention might be good, but it doesn't come across. The best supervisions are the ones that I feel I have learned something from them and then they have learned something from me, that cultural humility, the piece you know, that we talk about. And I think that having, that is very important. So like, for example, you know, I had, I had a supervisor that was discussing how I tend to focus on my growth edges quite often. Um, and I don't speak about the things I'm doing well, the clinical strengths you know, that I bring into the room and that was a very valid point and a feedback that I had gotten in the past. And he just posed the question to me of like, um, so what about your strengths? Like, why don't we speak about that? And it just immediately come out of my mouth, like, but why? Why do we need to talk about it? 
and we had to pause and process that because culturally speaking, like I grew up in a family culture and a community culture that focuses on the growth edge. It's about what you can do better. I mean, recognizing your strengths, but that's just for you to know. The world doesn't need to know. You know, you can be humble and like, you know, your strengths. You don't need to communicate, you know, it to everybody else. But that's different because that's different from here, like being in America and being in this Western context where it is about there's a sense of empowerment when you recognize your strengths and the skill sets that you bring. And it's almost a requirement, like when you're interviewing for places, you know, you speak of the strength, you speak of what you do well, as well as areas that you can grow in. And -hmm. I think the supervisor and I, we recognize that me as a South Asian woman, what I was bringing in was, I don't need to talk about my strengths. I don't need to, because that to me felt like bragging. I need to focus on what I can do better. But Mm -hmm. his experiences as a white male, it was about taking pride in things that you do well and communicating that to people around you. So almost like, you know, different worldviews through which we are seeing the same thing, the same issues. But Yeah. So having that, you know, like opening that up, like pausing, like let's pause, like something is happening, right? We're not seeing eye to eye. Then what is happening? Um, And everything that we do is shaped by kind of like our lenses. So I think that is also like important part of like training, I would say, as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And it sounds like that's something that you're able to do on an ongoing basis because it sounds like there's you feel supported in supervision, uh, and it also sounds like you feel supported in the program mm-hmm. through your peers, and I, I guess there are other forms of support that's associated with your training program as well. well. Right, and I think like I also recognize that there are times where that won't be the case, like where you don't have the support or you state it and it is dismissed or not recognized for its full potential. So this is another thing I want to say is like multiculturalism, I think is a little bit different when it comes to graduate students of color, because it is not an intellectual topic. It is a lived experience. It is something we are living through, we are experiencing. So when we talk about it, it has a different quality to it. Um, And I think that's why like at a lot of times it was on me to talk about and bring up some issues. But Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to have spaces that always communicated that this is a space where you can do so. Um, So I think, yeah, I was fortunate enough to have that. That's, that's great that you feel supported. And I also realized that you had mentioned that sometimes there's that fatigue piece that sets in because you're the one having to deal with all of the internal experiences, the internal feelings that come up for you while simultaneously taking on the role of being an educator, a teacher, or clarifying uh, misconceptions. Mm-hmm. And so what does that fatigue mean for you as a graduate student and as a woman of color? Um, that is such a great question. <laughs> I think like at times, like it, it was... It was just hard. It was just exhausting. It feels like you're fighting the fight. But the thing is, like, what's different is, like, I always see, like, other people of color or, like, identities that are, I would say, like, underrepresented or marginalized as a we culture, 
So you know, I'm not just doing it for myself. So when I talk about it, you know, even my supervisor noted that you often use the word we, because it is a collective. It is we. You know, I'm not saying my experiences mirror that of another South Asian woman or woman of color, but recognizing and having a space where I felt supported, where other people recognize that it is hard, you know, at times. Um, and I remember like one of my supervisors said that not only do you have the right to get tired or exhausted, but you have a right to be angry. And I think I don't often allow myself to be angry because it's like, this is life. This is what you have to do. You have to educate people. This is what you have to deal with. But mm -hmm. taking a pause, I think recognizing when you can and cannot be heard. Um, mm -hmm. There are times where I don't keep fighting because I feel like we're not at the same level to keep having this conversation, be it with clients or, you know, with other uh, responders. So I think that's also important to recognize that when you can, Put a distance and take a break um, because you, you'll exhaust yourself. You'll tire yourself if you constantly are doing it. But I know that it is just part of the life experience, you know. I see. So pacing and timing of it and picking your battles are your ways of taking care of yourself when you experience that fatigue as uh, a teacher, as an educator, while you're also a graduate student and a woman of color. Right. And like the, the points where like, you know, people really understand. So I'm not saying like at an intellectual level, but like at a, like a heart to heart. I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, but like when they truly understand and see you as a person, that moment in itself is so rewarding. Like it feels like you're like, your energy is up again because of that conversation, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that is really good as well. And I think if I don't say it, who is going to, like, I always say that, like, if I'm not going to say my story, my experiences, or um, offer a different perspective, who else will? Because there's no one else in the room like me I see. who will bring that perspective. Mm -hmm. So since you're such an advocate and it's important for you to speak up and clarify a lot of misconceptions. I'm curious, do you have support systems outside of your program or in your community that helps you pace your fatigue a little bit more? That's a very good question. I sometimes feel like we are, at least I am, I'm not gonna say we are, in the bubble of counseling psychology. And what I mean by that is counseling psychology as a field is very like multiculturally sensitive and understanding of these, you know, components. Mm -hmm. If I sit with, let's say, other groups of friends, it often is about educating them as well. Like, you know, because it's a different understanding. Um, mm -hmm. Let's say like, for example, my parents, it would be about educating. I'm not talking at the same level almost. Mm -hmm. So is there support to like process my feelings? For sure, you know, there will be. But I don't think there will be at the same um, understanding level that I have in my own like program and in my field because we are kind of like immersed in it. We are enriched in it, you know, like we are constantly soaking in it compared to maybe people outside the field and outside the program. Um, so yeah, that's a very good question. I don't think, yeah, 
there's support, but I don't think in, in a different form, I think. Sure. So it sounds like since we, for the large part, it sounds like you draw, I, I just noticed I said we. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retract and say, let, let me pause and say I. Mm-hmm. Um, so for what I'm hearing you say is for the large part, you feel like there's somewhat of a disconnect between the counseling psychology world where largely there is support when you seek it and there are systems in place for you to cope, for you to feel recharged. And that might look different at some places outside of psychology where it's a bit more murky about uh, what's out there in the form of perhaps uh, poorly informed comments, microaggressions, discrimination, and perhaps less awareness and challenges uh, challenges in terms of how to challenge those very comments and microaggressions, but also how do we cope with it in the outside world. Right. And, you know, that brings up such a big point. Like, you know, we do, um, we do so much, right? We do a lot of work on psychoeducation, taking our research and practice and um, making it digestible for the larger population. You know, when we talk about depression, when we talk about anxiety, by creating infographics, having a podcast or um, presentations and talks and seminars so that the lingo, like the language is something that is catering to the general audience. I think the same thing also needs to happen with multiculturalism. You know, I think we're so rich, like we talk about so many things. What, you know, what it would be like if we bring it to the community, if we share that kind of language, you know, have this kind of dialogue, correct each other, be vulnerable, and bring it to the large community of why it's important, why it matters, just like we do about education about the different mental health conditions, the different techniques, like, you know, deep breathing techniques and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what came up for me, like when you were sharing about that, of like how we can reach out a little bit better. Absolutely. And I, and I truly hope that with this podcast that you and I may have taken at least one of the first few steps forward in being able to take this rich discussion um, and this rich level of self-awareness from your side and the things that you're saying and doing to increase people's awareness around the cultural self and, you know, in the training aspect of it uh, so that people are more informed when they deal with other uh, like-minded folks uh, from the community. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I hope that we're able to, this is one of many steps that we're able to move forward with. Right. It's all in that that open dialogue, you know, like, let's just talk, like, let's just talk about our experiences. Like, how much do we really hear about, you know, other people's experiences in training or supervision or, you know, um, the clinical work that they do. But I think that's what's the most rich part, hearing someone else's story and connecting with it. Absolutely. So I know you mentioned uh, clinical uh, work and supervision. So speaking of those two, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and move into the realm of supervision. And I know you've already touched on a few aspects of of supervision. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, typically with APA and especially culturally informed supervision, uh, APA and culturally responsive supervision typically encourages talks and discussions and awareness around diversity, not just 
between the clients and the supervisee, but also includes that of the supervisor. And so because of that, culturally responsive supervision also tends to focus on identifying and valuing cultural layers within supervision. So can you describe your experiences in supervision that speak to addressing your identities or diversity as it relates to you as a supervisee? So that could mean, for example, a woman of color, being a woman, grad student. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the things that often stood out to me was um, coming from a culture that is other oriented. So what I mean by other oriented is um, it is based on the values of like interpersonal harmony, care for others, sometimes even putting the group right before yourself. Um, so one of my supervisors actually had pointed out that whenever I am um, dealing with some kind of like ethical issue with my clients or um, some kind of paperwork where we have to um, discuss with an outside entity, be it like a lawyer or like a disability officer or a caseworker. Um, my focus is not just on the client. I focus on kind of like the client, the clinic, the supervisor, and then me. And thinking about how these kind of decisions that we make, how the steps that I take right now with my client is going to impact my client but then everyone connected with my client. You know, my sup I'm under my supervisor's license, but you know, that kind of awareness piece of it. And mm -hmm. she pointed out, like, it's not, it's just a little bit unique because it's not that people don't think about, um, you know, like, like being under someone's license and being mindful of that. It's just when I make a decision, I'm encountering multiple factors, multiple people. And she's mm -hmm. the one who actually pointed out, like, think about it, it's perhaps related to that other orientation where it's not just you and your um, consequences of your action. It is about the impact of your you know, steps that you take on multiple people. And this is what I mean, like having like a systemic view of counseling, having like a, um, even sometimes like a social justice view of counseling, recognizing that there are different like institutional practices in place that is impacting my client is impacting me and this clinical setting um mm -hmm. recognizing that in some ways we are accountable and impacted by those forces so i think like you know those little nuances that happen in supervision that sometimes like open your eyes to it i think that was like one of the examples that came to mind um, that's a great example. Yeah. But, you know, like there, there's also been like other times. So, for example, like being like a young female, like a young woman, woman of color. Um, I had some like older male clients dismiss, dismiss the interventions that I was giving or dismiss um, the kind of feedback that I was giving. And as I told you, because of the interpersonal orientation, I just opened it up. I'm like, you know, hey, I've recognized that we have given so many recommendations or discussed these kind of steps or homework. And it has always fallen through. What's happening? What are the challenges you're experiencing? Does it not work with you? Things like that. And in my supervision, um, my supervisor asked me, how does it make you feel? And, you know, in our classic um, counselor way. <laughs> but it made me feel like dismissed. It made me feel small, like as if I'm not being recorded as a professional. And then mm -hmm. I had to do 
so much more to prove that I'm worthy and credible as a clinician. And we, you know, we were discussing about that. And he said, like, what would it be like if you share this emotion with the client? And this was the moment I talked about power and privilege in the therapeutic mm-hmm. relationship. So what I mean by that is I don't regard that therapeutic relationship needs like a big power dynamic. There is, mm-hmm. however, a power dynamic because you're a professional who's providing services and there's client coming in. Mm-hmm. Power and privilege for a clinician of color in a therapy room is so different because what I told him is like, if I shared this piece of vulnerability of me where I feel so small when he does that, that means that I am giving him another opportunity to dismiss such a vulnerable and close emotion to me. The client can dismiss it, the client can accept it, right? Mm-hmm. But it also means that I'm stripping away the little power that I have to protect myself a little bit in this relationship and handing it over to the client. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reason, like, you know, the reason that I did not want to disclose that personal relation, that personal reaction was because I felt that was my stuff. Like I could still talk about the dismissal. I could still talk about the relationship, but that core is me and my identity of constantly having to prove, constantly having to do better, to be seen as credible, to be seen as an equal. And he shared that, like, you know, being a male client, sometimes, I mean, male clinician, sometimes he does have the privilege that when he walks in the room, he's automatically regarded as a professional. He's automatically regarded as someone Mm -hmm credible and worthy. I'm not saying every moment, but he is. And he said that that's why it's easier for him. Like he can share that this is what's happening because inherently he holds that power and that privilege. And this is what I meant is the power and privilege for a student, like for a person of color, when they walk in the room, even in a professional relationship uh, is different. And there's so many research, you know, that they have been published on that. Um, And this is just, you know, one of my experiences. But I think this is what I mean, like, is recognizing that multiculturalism entails that as well. Mm -hmm. Entails addressing that power and privilege and how that looks at such, that looks um, different, depending on who's in front of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, you know, we have so much research that talks about, you know, clinicians of color having to do more or like, you know, not being seen as um, effective and efficient as their white peers. And, you know, granted, like things have shifted. But I sometimes feel like have things shifted because like we read this research from 80s and the 90s. We're in the 2019. I'm a graduate student also in 2019. Sometimes I think, like, how am I still experiencing these things that I have read in paper, like in research articles from the 90s, you know, from the 80s, and I'm -hmm. experiencing it still. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that is eye-opening sometimes, I feel. Mm -hmm. That even though the research that you might be reading or exposed to might be uh, from a different decade, yet the experiences and... Uh, the hurt and the power and privilege dynamic that unfolds in a therapeutic and a supervisory and other contextual relationships, it's still very present. Right, exactly. 
like we we have moved forward as a field in multiculturalism like no denying that we're you know we are so much more aware and sensitive and things but like this is what i want you know for people to understand is sometimes that means that we are revisiting the older you know stuff that came out the older research or things like that because it's still part of the real reality it's still part of like the lived experience just because you know it was two decades ago or a decade ago uh, that doesn't mean that it has shifted mm-hmm. any you know any more or any less absolutely and i think um there's more prominent research that's coming out on microaggressions which seems to be growing in in today's world and the importance of that subtle and not so subtle derogatory actions and comments that can have such a profound if impact on your role as as a student as an educator as a woman as a south asian woman um, so there's so many factors there that we're right. unfortunately we might not have time for today but yet it's so important exactly thank you and i think um you touched on this a little bit so my next question is about describing your experiences in supervision that speaks to talking about your multiple identities um intersecting identities and so i'm curious is it important for you along the same lines to hear about diversity related experiences from your supervisor and if it is important why is that so i think it is important and how it is said is also important so mm-hmm. what i mean by that is if it comes across as a token diversity so what i mean like if it is i have worked with clients with um such and such race or such and such group or such and such identities that is similar to you as a supervisee hence i know about your experience then no that's a dismissal that's a dismissal of you as a person in in some ways we're still talking about diversity in some ways we're talking about culture um but perhaps it's not in the most like sensitive manner so i think for my supervisor to recognize me as a cultural being is really important and i think um the counseling space is so intimate it is so based on human connection that i think we cannot strip away us being a cultural human being from that mm-hmm. um and what what that has entailed is like as i've told you that i have been fortunate where it has been communicated that multiculturalism is a strong like personal value for the individual along with you know apa requirement um but like opening up the room about like how do you think your identity as a woman as a woman of color and as a graduate student is interacting in this space but also interacting in the supervision relationship so mm-hmm. when i talk about being a woman and woman of color i always say like i'm like a i'm a south asian international graduate student like south asian woman who's a international graduate student those mm-hmm. identities are like my core they are informing my experiences you know they are um that is the lens through which i am looking at my training the knowledge i'm receiving and the clinical practice that i'm doing mm-hmm. and it is important i think for supervisors clinician everybody in the field to recognize that just being a woman doesn't mean like you know the experiences are 
universal. And we understand that, you know, just being a South Asian woman doesn't mean that every South Asian woman will have a universal kind of nuance to it. But Mm -hmm. I am a product of my gender socialization. And I'm very aware of that, you know, and I'm a product of my cultural socialization. So seeing supervisors as teachers, communicating my expectation that how I perceive them is this way. And I've had this conversation with my supervisors that, you know, this is how I see this relationship. And I think the Western context is very egalitarian. It's very equal. You're my colleague because in a few years you're going to, you know, um, graduate and you will be in the field with me. So I think I have to come in terms with that, make adjustments, communicate what I'm comfortable with, like calling them Dr. So-and-so instead of their first name. That's a small mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has also kind of meant that, you know, it means that, you know, if it's harmony or feedback, that I might have like an indirect way of giving feedback to my supervisor and, you know, recognizing and being open about that. Um, mm-hmm. So all in all, what I mean to say is having supervisors who are open to learning from you and recognizing and being culturally humble that they might not know, they might make mistakes, but it's okay. Because they're allowing, they're giving you the same permission as they're giving themselves. I think that is important in supervision. Okay. So it's not only important for them to be, for them, by them, I mean supervisors, potential supervisors to be transparent and perhaps open to some degree as they deem fit to talk about their own identity development or perhaps any intersecting identities if they, if they do have uh, intersecting identities and also to ask open-ended questions about your cultural self as a supervisee and to be able to say, I don't know when I don't know, mm-hmm. and to ask and be willing to learn and embody that cultural humility aspect, which is mm-hmm. for you a huge uh, doorway into talking about additional multiculturalism and supervision. Right. And, and, you know, that made me also realize, like, recognizing the times when your supervisee might not be ready to talk about those experiences and honoring that. Because they're already doing that 24-7 as a, as a person of color living in the American society. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. Like, there have been times in group supervision where I think un, it, unintentionally we want people of color to speak up. Um, you know, the room shifts a little (laughs) towards you. And I think recognizing that perhaps what they're going through is much more vulnerable. And perhaps Mm -hmm. this is not the moment that they want to speak up, that they want Mm -hmm. to share their experiences. And Mm -hmm. that's okay. And I think like people have honored that, but I think sometimes a natural shift does happen where you're like looking at the person of color, the one, you know, uh, person of color who is in the room or like the few representatives from that group to speak up. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, both in group setting and individual setting, recognizing that they are not ready and they're not expected to share Mm -hmm. if they don't want to. So another question that I had about supervision was, you know, can you speak to the importance of focusing on diversity related aspects when it comes to case conceptualization, treatment planning, and other aspects of clinical work and supervision because, you know, culturally responsive supervision is also about cultural aspects of presentation when talking about a client and the client-supervisee relationship. 
Right. That's a great question because I think like we emphasize now and I, again, I say we, but like, yeah, as a field, I think like we emphasize um, making culturally sensitive case conceptualizations, um, conducting and serving culturally sensitive treatments and interventions with clients. So I think that has been a big focus of our area. It is a big expectation of our area. And all our training emphasizes that, that recognize the different, the intersectionality of the client coming in, how those identities and the cultural nuances of those identities is influencing their experiences. Um, and, I, and I mean psychological experiences And when I say that. And Case conceptualization, you know, if it doesn't have, I would say, alternative hypothesis, or if it doesn't recognize kind of like the cultural upbringing of the client, the family upbringing of the client, then it is not complex and it is insufficient because you're not seeing the full picture. And mm -hmm. I feel like when we don't see the full picture and we are trying to, you know, complete the equation without seeing the variables, we are likely to make an inaccurate or, or an incomplete conclusion. And that's going to impact the kind of treatment planning that you do. Um, so what I mean by that, so it is very important to like gather more cultural data from your client, really talk about it um, and understand how those different experiences are, let's say, contributing to the presenting problem, like of anxiety or depression. But when you do that, when you see their entire story, when you have comprehended and truly created that big picture, then it's going to be so much easier to work with the client because you truly understand these experiences and you're going to keep you know, making shifts as you gain more knowledge. And it's going to inform your treatment plan of like what needs to happen. And it's going to make it more sensitive as well. And it, it kind of also reminded me that uh, recognize that conflicts can occur with identities. So, you know, if, if for example, like if I have a client who is um, uh, coming from like a, a she's she identifies as Muslim and comes from a very Islamic faith based uh, household um, but also identifies as a feminist and is empowered but mm -hmm. for her it might mean that sometimes there's a negotiation that's happening between those two identities and mm -hmm. they can be conflictual and that's fine you know they don't have to be clearly in two different circles always mm -hmm. you know, it's always kind of like a Venn diagram and that case conceptualization is what's going to offer you as the platform to view that Venn diagram, to understand how those ident her, how her identities have informed her behavior. Maybe the way that she behaves with her family is focusing on harmony, is focusing on the values of the Islamic faith, mm -hmm. but she's also empowered in her individual life and the, with the choices that she makes in terms of a career or education, things like that. Mm -hmm. And not to have like a Western feminist uh, perspective of what empowerment means. I think sometimes we do that, you know, even if it's client empowerment, not just like female empowerment, recognizing empowerment is self-defined for the client in their culture. Um, so I feel like I kind of went different pathways, but <laughs> kind of like going back to it, how it's important. Absolutely, because you're right in that feminism from a Western notion is about individualism. It's about speaking your mind. It's about being assertive. And in the example that you're giving, those might not be practical strategies to implement 
in her culture, depending on what's going on in the, in the environment that she's living in and interacting with. And so I think you make a really important point to consider cultural context, even in understanding empowerment and feminism and assertiveness, because they look very, very different. Mm-hmm. Here's something that's important to integrate into treatment planning and also the conceptualization of what the client's going through. Right. And like, that's why, like, you know, we always need to take like a little bit of a step back and think about like the psychological constructs and the psychological techniques that we come in with is, yes, they're culturally sensitive, but always remember that it has originated in a Western context. It cannot be ripped away from the values and ideologies of the Western world. And I would also say like, you know, the US culture, the American world. And I think the reason I recognize that is because I'm operating in a different culture, right? Like I've operated in a different culture. So I know that this knowledge is culturally contextualized. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for us, it would be, you know, good to keep reminding, like I have to do that too, if reminding myself that, wait a minute, is like, you know, self-esteem being understood the same way you know as you said like is empowerment being understood the same way is self-compassion being understood the same way as I am Mm -hmm. understanding it or is it culturally bonded explanation or definition absolutely absolutely so I think we talked quite a bit about training and the supervision aspects of multiculturalism and what it means for you as a graduate student who's also uh, a woman of color and an international student. Um, So I guess I want to get into the third aspect of our conversation, uh, which is practice, Mm -hmm. the practice piece of psychology. And one of the aspects that APA's guidelines for supervision is that diversity is integrated into all aspects of professional practice. And I know that's painting a broad stroke. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, you spoke about your multiple roles, and I just mentioned what they were. How do you integrate all of these roles when you do therapy? That is such a wonderful, like, question. (laughs) Um, So I'll start with a value that's really important to me as a person that is... um, based on my like cultural upbringing and gender socialization is interpersonal harmony and interconnectedness. The two things that I really um, value in my personal life, the way that I see that impact my professional identity as a clinician is in my work with the client, like authenticity, genuineness, and open communication in a not judgmental manner is kind of like the foundation on which I build. And that is because that interconnected piece with my client matters so much. I know, you know, I've had conversation with my supervisors who have talked about that. Oh, you don't have to like your client to work with them. And I know that's, that's, that's true. You don't have to like, you know, like your client or everything to work with them. But sometimes, you know, it has also had that underlying emphasis that you don't have to be connected to your client to work with them. And mm-hmm. that is in contrast and opposition of my entire being of who I am, how I have been raised. Connection matters so much. So I really do work with clients on building that connection. When I feel disconnected with a client, 
I process it first because it's like, is it me? What, what am I bringing into the room? And if it is, recognize it, own your mistake, own your like world, you know, uh, mishaps and stuff like that. But I opened that conversation. There have been times where I've talked to the client that at this point, I feel very disconnected. I feel like I'm not understanding and I want to understand. So what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, you know, uh, both like a product of my gender socialization and like, you know, the harmony and the connectedness that's important, but also in the South Asian culture, Indian culture, I would say about being connected to someone that is, this is just not a professional relate. I mean, it is a professional relationship that is based on human connection. So I think that's one mm-hmm. aspect, you know, that I bring um, kind of like into the room. Um, but also being open to talking about race and gender socialization. I'm very comfortable doing that. And I think that sometimes makes my clients uncomfortable <laughs> because we don't openly talk about it. But mm-hmm. It's my lived experience. I have experienced it. I know what a big role it plays, especially with my male clients. I talk about um, in U.S. culture and even like here, like, you know, in rural culture, um, vulnerability, strength, masculinity, Mm -hmm. all of it goes together and how it impacts how what they are talking about, how they use their support system, how they are in the therapy room. And I just open it up. So like for me, it is broaching the subject of race, ethnicity, gender socialization. Um, It is hard. It is vulnerable. It's sometimes uncomfortable, but it's easy in the way that that is something that constantly comes, that this naturally comes. That's one of the conversations, first conversations I would have with client Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. about the role that it plays in their current presentation. Um, so I think that's what you were asking, right? Like different identities and how that has impacted my practice with clients. Um, and I also talk about, you know, if um, being like a graduate student or being an international student, I mean, that doesn't come across as much, I would say, um, because most people do regard you as a professional, even if you're under training, you know, you say that. Um, and the international student has only come across as would have shared earlier, you know, with my white male clients at the university counseling center, um, where it was brought up as like, should I be sharing or not? So right. I think like, yeah, in those, you know, three core pieces of me, um, mm-hmm. I think that's what, how it has served. And I think like, because of that, like for me, multiculturally sensitive case conceptualization, um, using a social justice framework, mm-hmm again, that's natural, like that's how I conceptualize when I'm sitting with my supervisor talking and I go back and I talk to my clients about it. I talk about, hey, this is how I'm like thinking about the things that I have connected. What do you think about it? Or empowering them to come up with it uh, naturally as well. So I think that's another piece, um, how it plays out with my practice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, you mentioned that sometimes not all clients may be ready to talk about it and it might still play itself out in the room. How do you handle those situations as a clinician and as a woman of color? It's a very self reflective question. <laughs> um, let me take a moment to like formulate my thoughts. Sure. 
I think one of the maybe skill sets from my own upbringing that comes in is seeing points of connection. So I think there's always multiple points of connection to an issue. If you cannot address the issue this directly, there's always an indirect way to reach. And I think that might be because like the style of you know our communication, the family and the community was indirect communication. So there was always a way of like, let's say like with my male clients, if I cannot talk about the dismissal directly because A, they can be defensive and they're not ready to hear it. I can mm-hmm. always connect it to a part of their vulnerability that's really causing that defensiveness, right? Or that mm-hmm. dismissal. So mm-hmm. I think sitting in the room and then sharing with them about that vulnerability or their problems that they're experiencing or the psychological experience that they're having is sometimes maybe a softer approach as people would say it or more of an indirect approach, but it works mm-hmm. for me. It's true to me. Like when I do confrontation, it is empathic confrontation. So what I mean by that is I communicate my intention. I communicate what I am experiencing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, by validating their experience, I give the difficult feedback. So maybe it's a little roundabout way of doing it, but I think mm-hmm. it helps. It has helped people digest it a little bit better. Not always, but a little bit better. But it's also sure. true to who I am because I think like when I used to think about being assertive or confrontational, I was like, oh no, like I don't know how to do that, you know, because it's such a, we have such a Western, again, definition of it, of what it looks like, this direct, bold person, you know, who comes in the room. But it could be so much true to you. It could be a soft approach. It could be a gentle approach and you're still being assertive mm-hmm. and you're still giving that kind of feedback or confrontation that you intended to do but it's just true to your style mm-hmm. absolutely that's a, that's a great point um you know you talked a little bit about working with uh white clients who identify as male and you talked about working in a community that has a rural culture mm-hmm. i was wondering if um you could talk to some important aspects to keep in mind when you work with clients who also share similar multiple intersecting identities as yours. That is a very, very good question because I encounter, I don't encounter that a lot if I'm being honest with you because um, South Asian population seeking mental health is very limited. And especially like, you know, students from India who are here or Indian immigrants who are here, they don't seek mental health. So actually seeing my own representation in the clientele is hard, you know. However, I have encountered that in my first year in the training clinic, I had a client who was a third generation um, immigrant from India and her, you know, parents were from um, India and she would often talk about kind of the patriarchal family structure and Mm -hmm. how um, father decide the role and, you know, um, things like that. And I often saw that I would just agree. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that is definitely I understand. And she would do this thing where she would be like, you know what it's like. And then it stops. And then we go on to the next topic and then we go on to the next topic. Um, And it was me who recognized that, that she would often use this term, like, you know what it's like. And it's true. There's some um, shared cultural 
nuances, but our family upbringing was different. Her family upbringing was very different from mine. The relationship she had with her family members is very different from mine. So Mm -hmm. I brought it up in supervision, and that's when my supervisor introduced me to the term of over-identification. That tends Mm. to happen when you share identities, like multiple identities, maybe being a female, being a female in the South Asian culture, you know, being a female who identifies as a feminist, um, things like that. You know, even identity of a feminist is an identity. And like those were the multiple identities that I that intersected between my client and I. So having talked about that in the supervision, the next session, I just opened up, hey, this is what I've noticed is happening. And this is how I contributed to the conversation and the dynamics. And Mm -hmm. I think this is the consequence of this dynamic. It takes away the empowerment from you to tell your story. Mm -hmm. Taking on responsibility, admitting where you have contributed to some kind of like, you know, dynamic, mishap, miscommunication is very empowering because it opens up and it models for your clients how to take responsibility for miscommunications and things like that in interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. And we opened up and we talked about that and we said, okay, what is a possible solution? So let's say like when we recognize that, oh, you know what it's like, we'll be like, oh yeah, let's take a pause, but tell me still what that experience was like for you. Mm-hmm. And that helped like that little communication, that conversation, little bit of shift, it opened up to, you know, her sharing her story in this space. There's so, there's, it sounds to be very immediate and very genuine and bringing your own experiences into, into the room that really open up uh, for the client that sense of um, flexibility to see that there's some differences here. There's some similarities and there are also some differences that need to be addressed and that she needed to also, he, she, or they needed to also own their own experiences. Um, so that's that sounds like a great experience thank you so i'm going to shift uh, into a different um topic under practice mm-hmm. so um you know as you're aware our field and apa really focuses on the relevance of language and communication mm-hmm. and this is really sensitive to the lived experiences of individuals groups communities who come from different walks of life Mm-hmm. And they come, they bring all of that into the room as they interact with you as, as their potential therapist. Mm-hmm. And as psychologists and psychologists in training, we also seek to understand how to bring our own language and communication to these interactions, because right. that also is sometimes very co- contextually and culturally informed, the right. communication style, the language. So can you discuss the importance of language and communication styles when understanding and working with clients across cultures? Yes. <laughs> so I think like that is one of the um, biggest like things that I worked on in my own training. Because I told you like being an international student coming from a different communication style, a different kind of like language. I touched upon this a little bit, but I'll revisit it. Um, was about adjustment a lot of adjustment to kind of like the western expectations of what how i'm supposed to be presenting as so one of the things that i probably am doing in this interview is talking a lot 
it, <laughs> like giving a lot of context before the main point, because it's mm -hmm. about creating a picture, creating a story. That's the language I grew up with. And in my clinical experience with clients, like sometimes I would lose the client because, you know, they're like, wait, I'm lost because, you know, you have connected so many things. The thing is like, in Asian culture, like again, supported by research as well, the big picture is such a big thing. Like we see the big picture. It's the different elements right. of the big picture. So originally mm -hmm. in working with my clients, um, also developmentally appropriate, I would create, like connect all the dots for them. And then like, oh, here is the platter for you to, you know, see. Um, but A, that took the empowerment away from them. But B, that left them confused because they're not seeing what I'm seeing. So mm -hmm. the adjustment meant that this big picture view that I have can occur in supervision through case conceptualization. And mm -hmm. I can use that case conceptualization to slowly like uh, break off the intervention such that the exploration can happen with the client. So let's say mm -hmm. I thought about this identity piece and I'm like, oh, I, I'm seeing this inform how you are in your interpersonal relationship. But instead mm -hmm. of just offering it to you, I'm going to explore it for, with you. Like, you know, how do you think that this identity informs the way you're communicating with your partner, you know, or communicating with an open-ended language? Exactly, with an open-ended language. So, you know, that was an adjustment to make. And I had a supervisor, I told you, not until like the end of my second year, close to my third year, who was like oh the watered down happens because it's a language issue like it comes just naturally to you it's not like um not that not something you're intentionally doing because i'm intentionally doing it but i think like her culturally contextualizing it was really helpful because i was i used to be very down on myself like why can't you be more brief why can't you, you know why do you have to talk so much but when she mm. said that it gave me compassion and understanding of why i'm doing it and then still approach and address that issue with my clients. Um, the second thing I would say is direct versus indirect communication style. Um, so mm -hmm. being assertive quite a lot of times meant that you're direct with your clients and giving your feedback um, and giving difficult feedback or confronting their clients. And I am softer, I am gentler. Um, and I approach it by connecting it to like first validating their experience and then offering the feedback. Um, so that is a communication style that is different and mm -hmm. it doesn't work with every client. So I'm being like honest with you about that is I am much more emotion focused. So if a client comes from more like of an analytical background, Mm -hmm. It doesn't click immediately because the importance of emotions is not sometimes seen. So it's about taking a step back, recognizing that different mindset, problem solving versus processing. How can mm -hmm. we make it work? And again, opening up that communication, opening up the conversation, and also catering to the needs of your clients. So recognizing that if they are problem solving, solving oriented, which is also part of our culture too, is like, focusing on like what you can do versus what you can't um, is offering different therapeutic techniques or solutions that they can employ right now to cope mm -hmm. with the psychological distress mm -hmm. while you're also exploring the issue. And I think that's something everybody does, you know, in the therapeutic, mm -hmm. I mean, I hope everybody does in the therapeutic training and what we mm -hmm. are trained in. Um, 
but that's also kind of like a cultural shift of like um, integrating balancing between processing and finding a solution or giving a solution um, mm-hmm. to it yeah yeah so what I'm hearing you say is it sounds like there's there's the role of you as the potential clinician to be really aware of uh, the gender socialization but also the language and the communication style around which you grew up with and got exposed to and how that interfaces with the client who's coming in with their own lived experience of the language that shaped their upbringing and communication style and keeping your style aside while paying attention to the language and communication style that the client is demonstrating for you and tweaking the interventions based on those preferences. Right. And, and, you know, like it is very helpful, like, as you were saying that uh, communicating all of that to your client, because a lot of the times, like for some clients, the therapy is the, this is the first time they're entering therapy. They don't even have a context of what therapy is like. Mm-hmm. So using at least the first session or so to educating about what therapy is going to be like, but also what therapy is going to be like with me as your therapist, right? So I think communicating my style at that point is also helpful. Um, that this is the way that I work, but I also want to understand your expectations from therapy and what adjustments we can make in the process. Um, this, I don't know where it comes from, but I often do is I do a check-in of feedback with my clients. So I often check in every few sessions, like three or four sessions on like, how is this going? What's working? What's not working? Um, and being vulnerable to getting the feedback. What's not working with me? Like what are, you know? What are some ways things that have not really clicked? You know yet. Mm-hmm. And what can we do differently then? So we can keep making those shifts as we are going through. Absolutely. So it looks like you've touched on the cultural self, the role of the cultural self in therapy with clients who may have different identity than your own, who may have similar identities than your own, and the overarching uh, preference for you to bring your genuine authentic self that includes all of those intersecting identities that we talked about, and the salience of bringing those identities, not just in the therapeutic milieu, but also in supervision and also in um, being a graduate student and in in research and, and so forth. And so I wanted to thank you so much for your valuable time. And uh, this has been a fantastic experience. And I also come from a South Asian culture, and yet I've learned so much from you today because, like you said, uh, we have overlapping experiences and we also have uh, different experiences. So really, thank you so much. And it's been great. No, I really wanted to thank you. And like, I really appreciate, you know, you asking these questions, you diving into this topic, because, you know, oftentimes I feel like when these conversations happen, they happen in like CE credits of like workshops and all, but it's all, you know, clinicians and professionals who are established or researchers who are established and we don't get kind of like the training perspective as we are going through the training. Um, so I think I feel very like fortunate and humble to have the opportunity where I could speak of like my experience 
as a graduate trainee when it comes with multiculturalism. And granted, like I recognize it's limited. I know there are professionals out there who have had much more exposure, have much more experience than I do. So this is, you know, I kind of want to emphasize that this is just one experience um, and it no way, you know, like reflects the experience of everyone else, but it's just intended to, as you said, open a conversation, have the first step, have a dialogue so we can generate this idea or like the synergy of communication um, in the wider community if we can. Absolutely. And I think uh, this was a wealth of information from you and it gives a graduate student perspective who shares multiple intersecting identities. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you found us. iTunes reviews seem to have the most influence on making it easier for potential listeners to find us. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.